So first of all, like, can you introduce yourself for the audience? Absolutely, yeah. So my name is Jeff Dolan. Um, I currently work for the Boston Red Sox. I'm going into my third year with the organization. Uh, I've had a different title each year. My title for this upcoming year is going to be Assistant Minor League Strength and Conditioning Coordinator. Um, I also am the Rehab Strength Coordinator, uh, so work with all of our long-term rehab guys. And uh, also I help with some kind of integrated sports science, um, you know, player development initiatives, so to speak. Um, Prior to the Red Sox, I worked one year in the NBA with the Phoenix Suns. Uh, I've worked in college baseball and college soccer at the University of Illinois. Uh, And my first big boy job was with the New York Yankees uh, a number of years ago. That's how I got my start in strength and conditioning. So been to like New York Yankees, been to like Phoenix Suns, mm-hmm. and now it's like Boston Red Sox, right? Yes. So what's the difference between these three organizations? Um. So I think... You know, obviously, there's probably more similarities between the Yankees and the Red Sox, uh, you know, both being in the same sport. Um, you know, the, the culture from organiz- organization to organization is a little bit different from the Yankees to the Red Sox. But, you know, I, they're the two most well-known baseball teams in the world for a reason. Um, they go to it about it from slightly different places, but... They're both very successful organizations that believe in winning and expect to win. So that's kind of the the biggest similarity there. Um, You know, most of my career has been in baseball. So when I took the basketball job, it was a little bit of a culture shock. It took me a little while to adapt. Um, But, you know, within a couple months, I started feeling more comfortable learning the lingo uh, learning how the schedule worked, learning how to deal with a different type of athlete. And I think that although my time in basketball was pretty short, I think there's really nothing you can do that will help you more to grow from a professional standpoint than to work with a sport that you're really not very familiar with. Uh, and you have to learn all of it from, from the ground up. And it, I think it really, it really pushes you to grow. Did you did you enjoy like uh the last two pro setting experience? Yeah. Yeah. Um I think you know obviously really everywhere I've been I've I've really enjoyed. Uh but I've spent more more time at the professional level uh with three different organizations over two sports. Um the NCAA setting was was also awesome. Um, again, kind of similarities, but also some pretty big differences just in how you operate on a day-to-day basis, um, the rules governing, you know, when people can lift, how much they can lift, uh, or how often, um, you know, and having multiple teams at the same time that you're in charge of, of managing also creates its own challenge. Um, and I only really had two teams. Obviously, there are 
strength coaches that work in colleges that have to work with the entire athletic department. Um, so that just changes how you are able to manage certain situations and, um, you know, all of those environments challenge you in different ways and help you to help you to grow. Cool. Cool. So working with baseball athletes, there's a lot of like rotation and for, especially for, for like spit for, sorry, especially for pitcher, they want to like throw faster. Mm -hmm. They must, must have like strong lower limbs strength, right? So usually how like, uh, as a strength coach, we usually talk to our athletes or talk to our clients that that two times body weight is strong enough. But for athletes, it's, it's kind of different. Maybe sometimes it's too heavy or like not heavy enough. So for those pitchers, how usually how strong are they? So I, it's, it's been a long time since I actually had someone do, you know, like a, a traditional true one rep max test, uh, really in, in any sort of exercise. Um, we get a lot of data on how much force someone can produce from, um, from counter movement jump on force plate. Um, we're in the process of, uh, we do have a force plate mound. Uh, which would be, you know, there are force plates in, in the mound itself. So you can actually measure the ground reaction forces and such of guys while they pitch. Um, so that's going to tell you about how much force they're producing, how they're producing it, when they're producing it uh, in the specific skill of pitching, which is obviously going to be more relevant than something as arbitrary as putting a barbell on your back and squatting to a certain depth and, and pushing it up. Um, that being said, obviously pitching is a, is a skill that requires a lot of strength and explosiveness, uh, and also a very high level of coordination. So we know that force is generated from an interaction with the ground and is transferred up the body and out through the arm when the ball is released. Um, so the lower half has to be strong and powerful to take that force from the ground and, and send it up. And if we look at research on, on force plates uh, in mounds, like I mentioned before, uh, we know that when a pitcher strides towards the plate, his back leg is going to create an anterior posterior force. Um, that's like 35% of his body weight. Um, so there is some, some pushing that goes on. Um, <clears throat> And on the front side, when the front foot lands, um, there's going to be one and a half times body weight of vertical force that goes up through that leg and three quarters of your body weight in force going backwards and breaking forces too. Um, so basically you have to produce force and um, produce tension in the backside to push you towards the plate. Um, and then the front leg has to be that break and has to be an anchor, uh, basically so that everything can rotate around that strong, stable front leg, uh, and everything can be converted into rotational movement and angular velocity, which is just going to end up letting the baseball carry. 
Um, so the other has to be huge amounts of strength, power, um, stability in the lower body. Um, there's plenty of research that says that if you participate in a resistance training program, you can increase your pitching velocity. Um, you know, oftentimes those are not necessarily like you have to look at the study population though. So obviously if someone is a, a high schooler throwing 75 miles an hour or 80 miles an hour or something like that, if they have a, a much larger window to, you know, improve their performance. Um, so in the case of someone like that, you know, a couple of years of a good solid resistance training program, maybe you go from 70 to 80, 85, or maybe up to 90 or something like that. In the world that I live in where everybody already throws hard, um, it's, it's, you know, making much smaller, minute changes. Um, but they, they are still velocity is still something that if we improve it, it's, it's probably good. Um, and for example, like if we have a guy that throws 91 and 94, something like that, if we can enhance his, his training, his mechanics, his, his physical capacity so that we can get him to like a 93 to 96 guy, um, you know, the chances of him being able to continue on in his career and play at a higher level, they, they probably go up with most guys. So, um, you know, depending on who you work with, obviously I'm a, a big believer that that strength training plays a big part in it. Um, and really, really it's all about how you can create force and how you can transfer force through the system. I love this. I love this. So, uh, you mentioned a interesting thing or like that you haven't really done like one RM test for a long time. For some coaches, this is going to be a stupid question, but I'm going to ask anyway. Why didn't you like go like do the one RM test for your athletes? So for me, there's, there's a couple things. One obviously is the, the risk and the reward. All right. So yeah, at the, at the level that I work at, these guys are getting paid to play. Um, some of them are getting paid a lot. Some of them have been paid a lot as a signing bonus. Um, some of them have the potential to be paid a lot. Um, and we do know that the rate of injury in weight training sessions is low, very low. Um, however, for me in my position, it has to be zero. It can't be low. It has to be absolutely zero. So those of us who, who love the weight room and have spent a lot of time in the weight room and who have maybe competed in powerlifting or something like that, or just love to lift heavy, uh, we all either have been injured ourselves in the weight room or, uh, know someone who has and for for me and my population, that just can't happen because I will lose my job and potentially wreck someone's career. Um, and two, I know you you mentioned that kind of traditional 
puristic where, you know, squatting two times your body weight would be a, an objective that you would want to achieve to, to consider that to be, you know, a, a prerequisite level of strength. Right. Um, I, I don't think that's true. I think, uh, you know, a lot of heavy lifting is just, is, is a skill and, um, I don't train, I don't, I don't need to create lifters. I need to create, I think Joe Ken used to say he needs competent lifters that are competitive athletes, not competitive lifters. Right. So that's another big thing too. The third thing is, uh, I actually tend to steer clear of bilateral lifting for pitchers. Um, just because, so if, if you take a look at the people who are best at bilateral lifting in the world, um, that requires a certain adaptation, right? Your body changes in a way to help you achieve that task. And I don't know about you, but if I have, you know, let's say I'm strong as hell and I got a thousand pounds on my back, I probably only want to be able to squat down to about 90 degrees. And I don't want to actually physically get lower than that. For someone who plays a sport, you're probably going to have to be able to get lower than that. If I got 700 pound deadlift in my hands, um, I don't want a whole lot of thoracic rotation because I don't want that thing spinning on me because that's going to get sideways real quick. Uh, if I'm going to bench, whatever, 500 pounds, I don't want a lot of shoulder mobility because I want to basically be locked in this groove right here and, and be able to move it. Um, so the body will actually adapt to decrease degrees of freedom. Right? It'll, it'll take away the ability to rotate. And for my athletes, uh, particularly my pitchers, their ability to rotate is their ability to feed their families. Um, so I have found that doing more unilateral training, um, whether that's pure unilateral training or just, you know, split stance variations or, or lunging variations, that type of thing, um, more unilateral hinging patterns. Uh, I've, I've found that to be more conducive to developing my athletes in a, in a way that's not going to take away from their ability to go out and do what they actually have to do to compete and, and go on to the next level. Um, or with my rehab guys, like the, the last thing I need to do is create another problem. We've already got a dude who's broken. Uh, I'm going to completely, I'm going to try to control all that I can control to make sure that we don't end up creating another issue. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I approach, uh, my lower body stuff with pitchers. Now, that being said, like, yeah, I push them heavy. I find ways to, to challenge them. Um, but, but for me, it has to be the greatest possible return for the lowest possible risk or the lowest possible cost. Great. I really love this. I mean, I, I, I know I send you a list of questions that we can discuss, but I really, I really enjoy your answer, man. Cool. Yeah, no, well, I mean, we can talk for, we'll talk about whatever. We can talk about music if you want. <laughs> so, uh, for those like, for, for those who just mentioned that, uh, 
instead of like doing one RM test, you'll probably do some tests, performance tests on probably like force plates, that kind of stuff. Can you like uh talk a little about what kind of tests do you do on force plate or what kind of yeah, what kind of tests do you do on or on any technology? So uh we do use um force decks as our as our force plates. They've had them here for a number of years. Uh I also used them when I was with the sun, so I'm pretty familiar with those now. Um we also use the the Nordic curl. Um we may screw around with some other uh other types of tests beyond the counter movement jump. Um, and we have some, some movement screen stuff and some more medical based things. Um, and then obviously baseball is an incredibly numbers driven sport. So a guy steps on a baseball field and does anything, we have a number for that. So, um, you know, force plate testing in baseball is fairly new. Um, we have a lot of data on it because we've been, been doing it for a number of years. There's not too terribly much published research on force plate jumps uh, in a baseball specific population. Uh, I actually was reading about this this week. So it's, it's fresh in my mind. That's why I can spit all this back. I'm not a genius who remembers every study, but uh, <clears throat> there was a, a study from 2020, uh, which I think was actually financed by, by Sparta science. Um, so they have their three metrics, which they use with everybody. Uh, and I'm guessing this is with the Colorado Rockies because I know that they uh, had contracted Sparta. So they look at um, three metrics being eccentric rate of force development, <laughs> average concentric vertical force, and average concentric vertical impulse. I think I'm confident about one and three. The number two is some sort of vertical force metric. Um, and basically what they found, this this was kind of a, what does counter movement jump on a force plate tell us about injury risk type of study? Um, and they found that players with, you know, in the lowest quadrant of eccentric RFD have higher rate of, uh, of injury to the elbow. Um, and then the other significant findings were not those other two metrics themselves, but actually the interaction between them. So either you produce a ton of force in a short amount of time or uh, a low amount of force in a long time, uh, which intuitively know would probably not lead to great performance either. Um, but the, you know, groups that fell into those, those metrics uh, tended to be injured more often. Um and then there's another one too that I can't recall, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a process that we continue. Oh, that's right. It was, somebody wrote their master's thesis. I wish I remembered this guy's name. I just read his paper. It was actually really good. Um, so he, that's what it was. He had two groups of college baseball pitchers that he grouped into a, a harder throwing group and a, a slower throwing group and basically looked at their, force plate stuff like while actually throwing and then their their jumps and between the harder throwing group and the slower throwing group the harder throwing group had 
better concentric impulse. So that's, that's kind of something that came up twice is that concentric impulse is probably a, an important metric. Um, so I think if you look at something that's decelerative based and something that's accelerative based, it's going to give you a pretty decent idea of just general athleticism and how they produce force. Um, you know, does it always translate one-to-one -to, -one to someone jumps like this? So therefore they show this exact same movement strategy when they throw, I have a hard time believing that's the case, but the, the theory, at least the general support behind the approach of a jump to extrapolate to a throw is that they're both tasks that require you to, to summate force well and to coordinate force up and down the kinetic chain efficiently. So, um, it's a start. And, you know, I think one of our goals, and I'm sure the goal of every other organization too, is to, to find what are the tests that actually matter? Like what, what can we see, which will differentiate guys who will perform better and guys who will stay healthier than others. Um, and it's, you know, it's a, a, a tall task to, to look through it, but I think it's, it's worthwhile because we don't want to leave any stone unturned in terms of, you know, developing players that will help us win championships. Yeah. So <clears throat> next thing I want to discuss is uh, also a thing you mentioned that you don't think players should be lifting like twice their body weight that heavy. So like how heavy would you go when you do the unilateral training? Um, so I feel, I feel a lot better. Uh, you know, if someone does, if someone is strong enough to, to lift twice their body weight on, let's say a reverse lunge or something like that, I know that man is strong. Um, but again, like how much of a stimulus can we give to the system to increase force output? Um, whether that's muscular or whether that's neurological whether that's hormonal response whatever it is how can i maximize that response with the lowest possible risk right so man i wish i remembered the exact details but I, you know if you google mike boyle uh, everybody knows um but alex natera and his group actually found a study and they did a study a couple of years ago uh, where they actually determined like, okay, if you look at a, a bilateral squat with a barbell on your back, what's the equivalent to a single leg squat? Um, and I believe it's that if you do a true single leg squat with three quarters of your body weight and additional load, that's basically the equivalent of a double body weight squat. But achieving that obviously is is less absolute load, so therefore it's going to be much less risky. So, you know, for for years I was that guy who was like Mike Boyle, like he, he's just being soft. Um, you know, like I got introduced to strength and conditioning through powerlifting, which a lot of us do. 
And, you know, for the first part of my career, I was like, no, you got to, you just got to get stronger and it'll, it'll solve all of your problems. And now as I'm a little bit older and hopefully a little bit wiser, um, I just, uh, you know, I'm much more cautious with how I load guys. And I, I, I have not had anyone back squat at all since 2019. Um, <clears throat> And I've had force plates that whole time and we still find a way to make those numbers go up. So, you know, being married to, I, I will never be someone who's going to say like, you don't need to lift. You don't need a weight room. Obviously I, I will forever believe that strength is an important part of your physical preparation, but sometimes we need to look at how we're defining strength. Yeah. So, what exactly triggered you to change from doing like heavy back squat to like unilateral movement? I think it was a couple things. So one, um, I have seen someone get hurt. I have seen a team sport athlete get hurt in the weight room. Um, and I said, okay, never again. This is not, this is not going to happen. Um, two, uh, even with the guys that were doing bilateral lifting, I expected them to like, you know, start throwing harder and hitting the ball harder. And to a certain extent they did, but I had guys that, you know, either they had back issues or whatever that I was modifying their lifts to be unilateral. And that group actually saw better increases in, uh, in baseball metrics and uh things like sprint speed that type of thing than the other group um and at the time i was kind of like i'm influenced a lot by uh by boyle but also by people like chris corfist um who doesn't do anything bilateral um and i've i've met him and I, i've talked to him a lot well not a lot but you know several times i've talked to chris and really understood kind of the the methodology that he was using with his speed guys and um you know talked about how he could apply that to baseball and as i've gone you know a number of years now and completely phased out the back squat my guys are improving as well or or better than than they would have before um so and Corfist has that same exact study. A lot of strength coaches have that same exact, uh, that same exact story to tell. Like when you get into it, you're, you know, you're full of testosterone and you just, you want to see dudes crushing heavy weights and the squat bench and the deadlift is the be all end all. And that's how you're a dude. And that's how you're going to get better at sport. Um, and then you run across someone who like can't squat their body weight yet does, unbelievable things on uh, in their in, in on the field of play uh so it's like well what what's going on there <laughs> um and then obviously working with working with the basketball working with nba guys like the you know the the least expensive asset so to speak uh my my cheapest guy that i worked with was worth 1.8 million dollars um so the you know I had a better chance of getting pregnant than uh, of me putting something on his back. Um, that just, that wasn't going to happen. And 
So you find, you find a way, you find a way to, to mitigate the risk that's still effective. And guess what? Those guys improved too. Um, so that's kind of my, my approach now. Man, as a strength coach myself, I really, really enjoy the thing you just talked. And I really love your mindset about like when you're one of your athletes get injured, that's not going to happen again. I really love that mindset. So, uh, going back to the the list of the questions, sorry about that. But, uh, when, when we do, when baseball players do like rotation movement, is it the same with pitcher and, uh, hitter? Is the rotation about the same or there's difference in it? Uh, it's not exactly the same, but it's it's very similar. Um, and there are, there are similarities in any sort of um, like throwing anything, whether it's a baseball, football, uh, softball, whatever. The throw is pretty much the same, um, and any sort of punch is similar. Um, the only difference is a punch you you would deliver the impact and then pull back. Um, a swing is similar because everything is going to be sequenced in a way to create rotational force um, to deliver the bat head into the zone. Um, so it is very similar, uh, a very similar kind of movement. Cool. So uh, when it's a hitter, what exactly happened when they hit the ball during the rotation? What happens in the front leg? What happens in the back leg? Sure. So... <laughs> When you look at any sort of rotational task, swinging or pitching, um, you basically, you have to look at something uh, called the kinematic sequence, right? Same thing like golf, uh, even hockey, like to a certain extent, any sort of swing, any time, type of throw, um, it's basically looking at the, the timing of the acceleration of different segments of your body. And they get faster and faster and faster as you go from proximal to distal. Um, and basically you look at the, the peak angular velocity of the pelvis, the torso, the arm, and the hand. Um, and you determine what the sequence is of those peaks and what the relationship to the other body parts are. Um, so when the sequence is optimal, um, they accelerate in exactly that order that I laid out before, and then they decelerate in the same order. So that allows for the creation or the, the, the transfer of force and of, of kinetic energy up through uh, and, and the summation of that energy, which eventually leads to things speeding up and being fastest out here away from you. Um, so the first thing like throwing and hitting similar in that you're going to start with your weight more so on your back leg, you're going to shift your center of mass forward, um, by creating force going backwards. Um, and then you're going to land on a stable front foot, which is going to, like we talked about before, allow for that transfer of energy on up. 
Um, so the pelvis is going to rotate first, but the torso is going to lag a little bit, which is going to create a stretch across with the, the anterior oblique sling, basically everything from the front hip to the back shoulder, which allows for some stretch shortening cycle through the, the connective tissue and uh, the muscles here to, to be loaded and to release that energy um, and speed up as, as everything else goes. Um, pelvis goes, torso legs. When the pelvis decelerates and stops moving, that's when the next segment goes. And same thing for torso to arm, et cetera. Um, so it's kind of it, the best analogy is, is looking at how you crack a whip, right? So this accelerates and then it stops this accelerates and everything comes out and ends up cracking at the end. Right. But that can't happen. Like you can't crack a whip like this. Right. Yeah. It has to be, everything has to be sequential. It has to be that. And the deceleration at the right time is what creates that transfer of energy on out to create that snap. Um, so regardless of whether you're looking at pitching or hitting, that's one of the most important aspects of it. Um, and like the, you know, Titleist Performance Institute does a great job educating about this. Driveline does a great job. And there are, there are plenty of, there are different ways to measure this. Typically, once you get to the guys that I work with, most guys, um, if they have sequencing issues, they're going to be very, very minor because you don't end up performing at a high level in swinging or throwing if you have a completely wrong, um, you know, sequence. It's just not going to happen. But, um, you know, if you take lower level, like if you take a kid, uh, you take a middle school or high school or something like that, who's not very good, you can see all sorts of weird uh weird patterns of, of sequencing and acceleration and deceleration, um, which is, you know, realistically, if you, if you look at the, the task and, and the, the kinetic, kinetic, kinematic sequencing, um, that's when you begin to see like, okay, circling back to the conversation we had before. Yeah. Like it's important to be able to create force and to be able to, produce power and to withstand forces, but really like the money is made in the sequencing and timing and coordination of the movement. And that's exactly how, so I have the pleasure of working with Chris Sale, who's had a, a you know, it's a reasonably successful career, um, world series ring, Cy Young, that type of thing. Um, and from a traditional strength coaching perspective, if you look at this man who's like 6'6", 170, 180, um, basically built like a, like a string bean. Um, most people that don't have experience working with baseball players would say this guy is, is weak as hell and he needs to get stronger. Like he's just too skinny. Um, <clears throat> it doesn't make sense that he would be able to produce enough force to throw a ball 95 plus miles an hour. But if you watch the fluidity and the coordination and the elasticity and the efficient power 
that he displays when he throws a baseball, you say, oh, okay, I get it. That's how he does it. He does it by syncing everything up and by timing everything and getting things to fire at the right time and then turn off at the right time. Cool. So in order to create the web you just mentioned, does that mean that, let's say, you create the force through the lower body, the, the hip, the quad, hamstring, whatever it is, you create the force through the lower limb, does that mean that the upper body needs to be like, like what you just mentioned, it's stretch shortening cycle. So in order to create that stretch shortening cycle for the upper body, does that mean you need to do a lot, a lot, a lot of like ISO work for the core or a lot of like probably heavy stretch training for the chest and shoulder? Um, so yes and no. Um, I like doing isometric work for, for the torso. Um, but, uh, you also have to be careful with that because like we talked about before, I can't take away your ability to rotate. Um, so my big thing is we need to have enough core strength and stability to make sure that we're able to fire those muscles at the right time, but also appreciating the fact that that timing of that firing is, is one of the most important aspects. So, you know, I, I use this example when I was talking to someone yesterday, when you swing a bat, you're not, your core is not on the whole time. Like you're not, you're not grinding through it. Um, <clears throat> there's a really great study from Stu McGill. Uh, I forget exactly when it was published, but he looked at combat sport athletes um and he looked at emg of their core musculature when they throw a punch uh and he's he basically identified kind of a, a what he called a double pulse in the emg so when they first come back and they give that impulse to throw the punch there's a huge spike in muscle activity and then from here to impact it actually dissipates so the muscles turn off and then on impact, again, you see another huge spike. <clears throat> I see no reason why hitting a baseball uh, wouldn't be the exact same thing. Um, and same thing with throwing. You're trying to maximize the compression and the tension and the firing of everything at that point of either impact with the baseball or releasing a baseball if you're throwing. But you can't be stiff to get that done. You have to... Like I said, you have to take advantage of the sequencing of everything um, in order to get all that to just happen. Um, and then in terms of upper body stuff, uh, you know, there there is minimal research saying that like pressing strength, for example, correlates with throwing velocity. Um, and, you know, this, this goes to the the conversation about overlifting that we had earlier as well. But, you know, if, if strength or size was a one-to-one -one correlation with throwing velocity, then Arnold Schwarzenegger would have, would have thrown like 110 miles an hour, but I I've never seen Arnold throw. Uh, I can guarantee he'd never threw very hard. Um, so it's just, those are, those are the nuances of, of working with my specific sport is, is you have to 
be able to improve their strength in ways that um, doesn't steal from what they do well. Um, so, you know, I do have guys do dumbbell, dumbbell press, that type of thing. Um, but like I said, I, I try to avoid things that lock you in. So I will either, if I do want to get some stability training, I'll have you do with one arm. Um, my favorite to do is actually alternating. So you get expansion on one side and compression on the other side and your rib cage can move a little bit like it has to when you throw, um, with any sort of row variation, I like to add a reach to the other side, um, just so, you know, you can train all those muscles while still allowing for that freedom of movement that you're going to need when you throw. Um, and then, you know, in terms of, in terms of pushing strength aspects, um, your lats do need to be very strong. Um, and your, you know, everything on the backside of your shoulder need to be very strong. Cause anytime you like, if you throw hard, anytime you release the ball, you're getting basically your body weight in terms of distraction forces at your shoulder. So everything back there that's involved in deceleration needs to be incredibly strong. Um, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, adaptations to throwing, right? So everything, everything throwing is, is IR. If I go into ER, I'm getting a, a stretch shortening cycle on all the muscles that internally rotate. So my pecs, um, you know, my, my lats, that type of thing. Um, my subscapularis, all those get very strong just by throwing because of plyometric load. So most of what we have to do from a, from a arm care perspective or an injury reduction perspective has to be to balance out or counteract what's happening as a result of what the sport is giving us. So external rotation work. Um, there is an identified, um, Kevin Wilk, physical therapist has identified, uh, an ER to IR ratio that if you're below that, it's a red flag for injury. I think it's 0.65, something like that at, at 90 degrees ER, IR. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the upper body approach to, to pitchers for me. Appreciate that. So, uh, can I also like circle back to the question about like sequencing? Mm -hmm. Let's say if one of your athletes, when they throw a med ball, their upper body go first instead of the hip rotation, what exactly would you do to like correct this movement? Um, so chances are, if I would see that in my pop, like it's going to be a different answer for, for someone else. Cause I'm probably not going to see that. Um, if I did see that, I would probably say the medicine ball is either too heavy or I would just say, uh, like I would probably, uh, give them a little shit and be like, when you throw a baseball, do you throw a baseball like that? And they would probably say no. And I would say, okay, can you please rotate your hips? And they'll probably say, okay. And then that will probably clean it up. Uh, in the case where someone is not as skilled as, as the guys that I'm around all the time, um, you could probably constrain the drill in some sort of way, or you could, you could break it down into pieces, um, or you could even regress working on the pattern so much so that you like, actually isolate just the movement of rotating your pelvis 
um, and keeping your, your torso stationary. Just get used to how that feels. There are, are ways that you can actually load that to get a feel for it. Um, and then, you know, I would, I would probably break down the medicine ball throw itself to the point where I'm saying, okay, let's, let's put you in a position where your hips are already rotated or feel that rotation of your hip and then come through with, with, uh, with your upper body. Uh, um, I don't love that, like from a long-term standpoint, just because like I said, uh, sequencing and timing is everything and that's going to disrupt everything. But if they really truly need to feel it broken down to that rudimentary of a, of a movement, then you could do that. And then hopefully they'll have enough athleticism to be able to put that all together. Cool. Last question before I let you go. Okay. Sure. So there's going to be a lot of like, uh, injury for pitchers in their elbow, in their shoulder. How, when they throw a ball that fast, right? So how exactly do you minimize? I don't want to use prevent, but how exactly do you minimize the chances of them getting like injured in their elbow and shoulder? Sure. Yeah. So like you said, uh, unfortunately, the, the fact of the matter is uh injuries to the, the upper extremity and pitchers are very, very common. Um, I think we're at the point now where something between like a quarter and a third of any pitcher who's pitching in the big leagues has actually had their U UCL reconstructed, um, Tommy John surgery. So, uh, and, and especially the elbow issues, the UCL tears continue to go up, um, which is, you know, it sucks. Um, so there are a lot of things that you can look at in terms of, you know, what we're trying to, to do to prevent that with still appreciating the fact that throwing a baseball at a high level is extremely traumatic. And there's really no way that we are ever going to be able to change that. It is what it is. Um, basically the the research is most clear that the the biggest risk factor for tearing your ucl is throwing really hard like if you throw if you throw harder than 92 93 your risk to get tommy john surgery goes up that's just the reality of the situation um and physics the the laws of the universe being what they are um and the average fastball velocity in major league baseball and in minor league baseball continues to go up, especially over the last 10 to 15 years. So it, it's no surprise if you take that into consideration that we are having more UCL tears. Um, and if you, if you talk to, obviously I've spent a lot of time around high level baseball players. If you talk to any pitcher, um, you, you begin to realize that everybody's arm feels like shit. <laughs> um, it's kind of, it's kind of like with basketball players, every single basketball player, their knees hurt. Like if, if you read research on patella tendinopathy and stuff in elite basketball players, it's going to tell you that it's like 50%, 70%. No, it's, it's 100% of basketball players knees hurt. It's just, it's just what it is. Like they play a lot of basketball and, and that's hard on the knees. Um, if you do a sport where you're delivering a, a five ounce projectile and your arm is moving 7,000 degrees per second. Um, 
that's a lot of stress <laughs> and there's, you know, there's ways we can try to approach minimizing it, but ultimately there's going to be a lot of stress. And actually the, the, the UCL, like the force that um, is encountered by the UCL when you throw, <clears throat> it's actually more force than the, than the tensile strength of the tissue. So like if you were to take a cadaver and just uh, give them valgus stress on their UCL, it would take less force than they get with pitching to tear that thing. So um, basically everything else, the entire body has to help this ligament withstand that force. If it's, if it's left out to dry, like, if your forearm is fatigued, your UCL is more at risk to, to tear. If your mechanics are off, your UCL is at more risk to tear. If you're weak, your UCL is at more risk to tear. Um, <clears throat> we talked about, you know, de uh, distraction forces during deceleration are, are literally your body weight in force. Um, so really it, it takes a, a fully integrated team approach to managing pitchers and trying to mitigate their injury risk. It really does. So um, strength side, medical side, sports science from a workload management perspective, pitching coaches from a mechanics perspective, it takes all of them. Um, but basically like from my perspective, like what I have control over trying to, to give them in terms of preventative interventions, um, basically training a high level pitcher for performance and training them for health is the same thing. Um, if you work at a lower level, that's not necessarily the case. Like if you, even, even when I worked in college, it wasn't necessarily 100% the case, right? Cause I was trying to, I was trying to help create something. Um, obviously I had some kids that were super talented and I had kids that weren't so much so you go to the next level and everybody is that talented. Everyone is that dude who was, you know, a top five guy on their college team. Just everybody is that now. Um, so if health and performance are, are the same thing in a high level population, um, then you have to consider, okay, well, what is arm care for me? Arm care is not an isolated thing. It's, it's taking care of your whole body. Um, so, you can break that down into as many categories as you want, like off the top of my head, like range of motion is, is part of it. Um, and, you know, working with baseball players is unique because anyone who's the high level thrower is going to have unique adaptations to their throwing shoulder, which if you saw it in someone who doesn't throw baseball at a high level, you would be like, what the hell is that? Um, there are, there are, huge, uh, adaptations that you get, um, in terms of structure from, from throwing a baseball. Some of them are more genetic, um, like certain people will have, are, are naturally more external rotation biased. So they're probably going to be better at throwing just naturally. And then over time, especially as you grow up throwing, it actually changes the architecture of your, of your arm and your shoulder. It actually retroverts the humerus. So it, opens up more external rotation by, by changing the, the nature of how the growth plate actually forms. Um, but that being said, like, if you do look through research, there are even within that weird group of 
high level baseball players, there are range of motion considerations that are correlated with injury. So the, the biggest one um, <clears throat> used to be uh, glenohumeral internal rotation or rotation deficit from side to side. There's some research that says that that is a valid thing to, to worry about. And there's actually some research that says that it doesn't matter. Um, some of the newer research says that actually having less side to side difference is a, a higher risk factor. Um, and that like having, uh, what they would call an external rotation insufficiency or having not enough difference in external rotation in your throwing arm is actually a red flag. Um, but the big one that I think that we can really influence is shoulder flexion is, is a big one, um, especially for elbows. Um, so we spend a lot of time trying to, trying to restore flexion. Um, obviously with all the stress that is placed on a throwing shoulder, um, especially like on the lat, um, you know, we get a lot of micro trauma and a lot of damage to the lat. So, uh, a tight lat is going to make it difficult for you to, to flex your shoulder. Um, so we spend a lot of time on that. Um, there's some, uh, resources that horizontal abduction is something to consider. Um, so basically in terms of these range of motion things, it's going to be, like I said, a team approach, like what can the medical staff do from a soft tissue perspective, from a joint mobilization perspective? Um, and then how can I, utilize techniques in the weight room, or even sometimes I'll go in the training room and do it. Like, how can I utilize certain respiratory techniques to influence, um, rib cage movement and mechanics to affect change at the shoulder? Um, can I do something to change the orientation of your pelvis, um, to, to affect everything out to affect range of motion at your hip or at your shoulder? Um, you know, how does your thoracic spine rotate? If your thoracic spine is, is, bogged down and, and doesn't rotate well, chances are there's going to be consequences higher up. Um, you know, do your hips rotate? Are you able to internally rotate into your front hip as you deliver a pitch? Because if you're not, you're going to have to crank through your torso and that's going to be, you know, that's going to predispose you to lumbar spine issues, oblique issues, or even farther up shoulder elbow. Um, again, like everything's connected in this chain. So everything has to, has to work. And if one link breaks down, there's going to be consequences farther on, um, you know, range of motion. We talked about, um, you know, strength stuff. We talked about already strong, stable, lower half, um, the ability to withstand force, uh, range of motion in the lower half and the ability to control that range of motion is important. Um, strength on the backside of the, of the shoulder, um, you know, especially the, the, the rotator cuff obviously is very important in its ability to keep the humeral head centrated in the shoulder joint. Um, and we talked about how that gets screwed up with IR, uh, balance with the IR and, um, you know, how does the scapula move? <laughs> Um, cause the scapula is going to dictate the position of the shoulder and how much room is there to, uh, for it to translate superiorly. Um, so can the scapula upwardly rotate and can it posteriorly tilt to allow for that flexion, which we talked about before. Um, and we talked about pitching mechanics, like does someone sequence well, does someone coordinate well, is there an energy leak when their front foot hits the ground? 
Um, so that's a long explanation for things that we try to do. Uh, obviously the, the odds are stacked against us just because of, of the, the nature of what throwing a baseball at a high level is. But as far as I'm concerned, if, if I and the team that I work with have done everything in our power and everything that we can control in order to give these guys the best possible chance of being successful, then we've done our job. And from there, you know, the universe or, or God or, or whomever you, you look to as a higher power is going to determine what happens from there. Love that, man. I really, really enjoy talking to you. That's kind of like all the questions I have for today. So if, the, if there's like, because I have like coaches and therapists going to watch this. So if there's like coaches and therapists are interested in what we're talking about today, where can they reach out to you? Really love this. Sure. Yeah. Um, best place right now would be Instagram. Um, my handle is hammer of Dolan, all one word. Um, I will, I will get a website up and running here at some point. Um, it's not ready yet. It's in the very, very beginning stages. And obviously my, my day job makes it somewhat difficult to make progress on that in a hurry, but We'll get there someday but in the meantime uh reach out on instagram i spend a, a decent amount of time on there and i like interacting with people on there so that's where i would go cool so that's all for today <laughs>